Again, we are here to remember little Jordan. Jordan Elliot Megan. Um, I do want to say right at the very beginning that, uh, again, my, my hope is that you guys will be comforted by the word, word of God. Okay? Not some sentimental feeling that I'm trying to share with you. Um, what I'm going to do, I, I've got a lot of notes, okay? But, and so, because it, there's a lot of information that I want to share, and so I'm going to be looking down at my notes more. I like trying to make eye contact, but I don't want to keep you guys all day. So I don't think it's going to take too awful long. But I think the, the topic is so important, and I think it gets really overlooked, really bypassed. Uh, we're, we're talking about the death of infants. So what it's going to be, I don't have any headings or points, but it's just, they're just building blocks, okay? They're just building blocks to what I think the Scripture teaches that God does with infants, okay? So don't take one building block and think, well, that's not real clear. They're, they're building blocks. In other words, we're, we're trying to build a house of, of comfort from the Scriptures, looking at one building block at a time. And so I will be... Probably, well, I will be reading a little more than usual um, so that we can get through it. <clears throat> and so although Hunter and Savannah and the rest of us never got to know this little one, um, we know that Jordan was known and Jordan is known, amen, by our God, by her, his or her creator. Um, you know, the first thing that I want you guys to know, just be comforted in, is that, is that God created Jordan with an intimate knowledge of him or her. Very familiar passage, Psalm 139. We are going to be just jumping around. <clears throat> Psalm 139, verses 13 to 15. says this, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. So we know God intimately knows Jordan. And in the very next verse, we see that God even ordains our days, regardless of how few or many they are on this earth. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. We have to, we have to remember who our God is, keep an eternal mindset, and realize that whether it's six weeks, like little Jordan, or whether we lived 95 years, guys, our life is but a dot. That's on a, a line that never ends. Okay? So in God's eyes, there's not really any difference. <clears throat> Our lives are short. Scripture tells us that Jordan, like all of us, were made in the image of God. And so, dear friends and family and church, just know this, that God does not make mistakes. He does not make mistakes in anything that He does. He does not allow a conception that is outside the bounds of His sovereign plan and purposes. <clears throat> Genesis 18.25 may be a familiar passage to some of you. You know, it's when, it's when Abraham was having a discussion with the angel of the Lord and 
pleading with him not to destroy Sodom. You know, if you can find just a few righteous people, that's the context. Don't want to spend any time there. But he made this statement in Genesis 8.25. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Okay? Regardless of where, we, where you fall on this whole idea of babies dying, that's one thing we can all agree on. God's going to do what's right. Okay? And we'll come back to that a little later. So have that just in the back of your mind. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? When we think of all the billions, beloved, it's not millions, it is billions of people who have exited this world without ever being born. Okay, when you're thinking of young Jordan, miscarriages, and you think of poorer countries, this happens by the millions. When you think of the atrocity of abortion, when you think of um, young children, when you think of adults with the minds of young children, where are they? Does the Bible give answers? Does the Bible say anything? Where are they? Where are all these billions of people? Are they all populating hell? Some people say so. Are they all populating heaven or in between? <clears throat> Again, I want to give Hunter and Savannah, I've said it, several times, but I just want you to hear my heart. I want to give people in this room, people who may listen to this, comfort from God's Word. Um, I will say that this sermon that I'm preaching is based off of a a book written by John MacArthur, Safe in the Arms of God. Um, I agree with his stance on this. I respect him for taking a stance on it. It actually, and the book actually came from two sermons he preached years ago. So I'm, this is just basically a short summary version of this book that I am given to Hunter Savannah as a gift. And I will say that if anybody is interested in that book, whether you're part of our church or not, we will give you one free. Okay, I will order them. So this is just a short summary. Um, God considers all babies to be His. They're His. He created them in the womb. He's no stranger to them. And he loves all who in his words, we're going to look at this word several times, are his innocent little ones. His innocent little ones. And this is where we just we start to just, we're going to jump around and I'm not going to camp out anywhere for sake of time. But Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, 20, 21, again, these are going to be building blocks. Just one block at a time. Ezekiel 16, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> I think it really starts out slow, maybe picks up as we go. 16, 20, 21. Uh, sorry about that. Let me over here. In a normal sermon, I try to have my verses written down so I don't have to be flipping. But Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21. Moreover, the Lord says, You took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. God clearly states ownership of these children. Okay, And I, and I just want you to understand that the parents of these children were wicked. Wicked and idolatrous. They may have been covenant Israel, but they were covenant breakers. These were wicked, ungodly parents. And God clearly states, He owns these children. Okay, That's one thing I want you to understand. God is the creator of life. 
He owns these children in these wombs. Again, he even refers in, in Jeremiah 19.4, we see this. There's, there's other scriptures that I could have written down. But for sake of time, I just really chose one or two for each building block. He even refers to them as his innocence. I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S. Innocence. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19.4 is one of those occasions. He says, Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known and because they had filled this place with the blood of the innocent. And by way of context, if you looked at the next verse, clearly talking about the children who were sacrificed to Baal. He refers to them as his innocent. These children of these wicked unbelievers. God clearly has great compassion on his innocent ones. Okay? His innocent ones. I think this is also clearly seen in Jonah. The very last verse in Jonah, it's chapter 4, verse 11. Obviously, the context of Jonah, you guys know God sent the prophet Jonah to preach repentance to this wicked city of Nineveh in Assyria, and they repented. And because Jonah's heart was not right, he was mad that they repented. I knew you would do this, God. That's really beside the point here, but, but in Jonah, the very last verse in Jonah, so Jonah's having this conversation back to God, and, and the Lord says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. Now, I believe this is referring to infants. That's what I believe the text is referring to. There there are some who would say that, no, this is just referring to all the ungodly in Nineveh. They're so ungodly that they don't even know the right hand between their left. I think that contradicts Scripture. Romans 1 clearly tells us that men and women understand their sin, and they are going to be without excuse. I hold the view that this is speaking about infants. I agree with John MacArthur. Um, John MacArthur is also in agreement with John Calvin. John Calvin sees these as infants. And this is just some of the commentaries I have that I looked at, at my, in my home. The Puritan Matthew Poole agrees that these are infants. Um, also, the Puritan Matthew Henry agrees that these are infants. He says this on this verse. These are taken notice of because the age of infants is commonly looked upon as the age of innocence. So many there were in Nineveh that had not been guilty of any actual transgression and consequently had not themselves contributed to the common guilt. So the, so the phrase innocent, it's, it's the idea, and we're going to come back to it again and again. It's the idea that they didn't understand sin. They didn't understand law. They had no understanding of grace, no understanding of forgiveness, and obviously no understanding of salvation. I just, you know, as I was writing this, it, it just occurred to me, God does not use the word innocent like this unless He means it. Unless he means it. So next building block we'll look at. When we think about these, when we think about these children of Baal, or sacrificed to Baal, they were not cursed or held guilty because of the wicked idolatry of their parents. Okay? 
And, and I debated whether to add this won't take but a second. Because this doesn't apply directly to infants, but this principle, I think, does. And Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says this. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. In other words, no one is condemned or no one is saved because of who their parents are. That's what this verse is saying. We're we're accountable for our own sin. So I think the principle we can apply to infants as well. In other words, it doesn't matter whether they're coming from a family that loves Christ or an idolatrous family. I think it's irrelevant. These, These little ones in the wombs are God's. Because I think if you go down that line and you start talking about, and I'm sorry, okay, I don't, I don't mean to unnecessarily offend anybody, but when we start talking about covenant children, okay, physically speaking, I think you can start to go down a road that I've heard groups like the Hebrew Israelites say, well, God has favor on me because of who my parents are, because of who my dad is. And that's a dangerous road to go down. I think the scriptures let us know that these that these little ones are gods and they are innocent regardless of who mom and dad is. That's what I see from the scripture. Example today would be, what about a child conceived out of wedlock, right? Two sinning parents committing fornication out of wedlock. She conceives. She doesn't want the baby. She goes and has the baby aborted or murdered. Or maybe, or maybe a baby is born but beaten to death by an ungodly father. Okay? Or maybe miscarried in the womb of a godly mother. I think all these infants are gods. They're all innocent. Their, their mom and dad standing with the Lord is irrelevant. The way I see Scripture. Our next building block. What about the death of babies? At, at God's commands of judgment upon cities and nations that we see in the Scriptures? That may be a question that somebody might have in their minds. You know, we see you're talking about God having compassion on these little ones. What about Isaiah 13, 16? And there's, there's more examples. I'm going to share a couple. This was judgment upon Babylon. And, and, and the prophet Isaiah says, their little ones will also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Or Hosea 13, 16. This is Assyria against Israel. Where it says, Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. So how how do we reconcile God's compassion on His little ones, His innocent ones? He's the one that says innocent. Okay? This didn't come from John MacArthur or any other man. God says these are his innocent ones. How do we reconcile that? Well, I think it's very simple. In short, children experience a better life after death than they would ever experience in this world. I think that's obvious to see. We could even make the comparison, if we, if we want to think of it that way, what about, what about Christians, adult Christians who love God, whom God has a special love for them, Let's take the early church, for example. God has a love for His people whom He died for. Amen? What about those early Christians who were skinned alive for not confessing Caesar as Lord? 
Does that mean God does not have an affection for them? No, not at all. I, th- I think the idea, guys, is it can look bad from our vantage point in this world. But it's instant heaven for that beheaded Christian or that Christian that's skinned alive. And in the same way, for the little ones, I believe it's instant heaven. Regardless of whether they are part of a bigger judgment on a wicked people and they're dashed to pieces. Scripture teaches instant glory for the little ones. Our next building block, Job chapter 3. This will be real quick. Job chapter 3. And then chapter 19 real quickly. Job chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. Now you guys remember Job, how much he suffered, right? He had everything taken from him. He had his his wealth, his children, his health. So he says, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I've been better off born, still born. Um, I would have slept in and I would have been at rest with kings, with counselors of the earth who who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded as infants who never see the light. He said, I've been better off. I'd have been better off. No, I'll make a comment here in a minute. Let me read Job 19, 26, 27. He said, I'd be better off as a stillborn. Uh, Job 19, verse 26, through 20, or 26 and 27. Even after my skin is destroyed, he's talking about death here. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. So just real quickly, as we look just through these two texts, we see, first of all, Job was a righteous man. And we have to trust that Job had rather sound theology. Okay? Um, He clearly believed in being with God in the next life. He is clearly stating that he would have been better off as a stillborn. Okay? Going right into the presence of God. This is not some unbeliever, okay, who... Who we hear say, well, yeah, it'd be better off dead because it's just the grave and that it, that's it. That's not Job's mindset. He understands that there's an afterlife. That he would be in God's presence. That it would be better off if he died as a baby than suffer. He's obviously not saying, it'd be better off so I could be in hell. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote to close friends whose young child had died He says this, I hope you are both reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. And so the question would naturally come up. I've heard the question. Then why go to the abortion mill and plead with the mothers not to murder their baby if it's instant heaven? That's a a natural question, right? When you think about it. Well, I mean, I would say this, guys, very simply, because it's murder. Right? I don't think we, we don't need to overthink something like that. Because it's murder, and because God hates the shedding of innocent blood, that's enough for me. Amen? It's kind of the same mindset. Well, okay, you believe in God's sovereignty. Well, why go evangelize? Because He said to. Right? 
So I don't think I don't think it's healthy to go down that road. It's murder. And so obviously we should plead with those not to murder their child. And let God be God. The next building block. Jesus held children in high regard. I think we all realize that. But even, even as I was studying this, uh, some things were brought to my mind that, well, you'll, you'll see it. Just Luke 18. Luke 18, 15 and 16. It's amazing when you're in a hurry and you're trying to find the Scriptures and you're just like, where's Luke at? Luke 18, 15 and 16. <clears throat> so this is right after the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It says the, the, the crowds, the people, they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch... That's why I went to Luke's account because it, it actually specifies it as infants or babies. Uh, they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That last part, guys. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I'm going to read several quotes, which I think is, is healthy. More quotes than I usually read because I want you to hear the thoughts of other men, other reformed men that we all have such high regard for. I read Matthew Henry earlier. Um, I do want to quote John MacArthur here. It was too much to try to summarize what he was saying, so I just want him to say it on this verse here that I just read. He says this, But you may say Jesus was only using the children as an analogy for the way adults are converted and become part of the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, Let me quickly point out to you that an analogy works only if it is rooted in truth. If children are not readily and fully received into the kingdom of heaven, the analogy to spiritual conversion would be a very poor one. As it is, the analogy is a great one. Obviously, Jesus made it, right? Children are readily accepted into the kingdom. And because of that, we are wise to become like children in our spiritual dependency upon the Lord so that we too might be readily accepted. That makes sense to you guys? The analogy only stands if there's truth to the fact that for such, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Mark 10, verse 16. And he took them, the little ones, in his arms and began blessing them. MacArthur makes the point on that verse. He says, I do not know of any place in the New Testament in which Jesus blessed the wicked. John Calvin says on these, on these scriptures here, These little children have not yet any understanding to desire His blessing, but when they are presented to Him, He gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. Calvin went on to say it would be too cruel to exclude that age from the grace of redemption. Then he wrote that it is presumption and sacrilege an irreligious audacity to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom He cherishes in His bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom He does not wish to be forbidden to come to Him. And then the 19th century Presbyterian preacher Charles Hodge says this, He tells us of such 
is the kingdom of heaven. As though heaven was in great measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. So we see Jesus' high view of infants. The whole idea of innocence, that word innocence, again, they spell it I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S, innocence, the little ones who are innocent. What it does not mean, okay? What it does not mean. First of all, we must understand all children are born sinners. Amen? I would hate to be misunderstood on that. So when Scripture speaks of infants as innocent, it does not mean that they are untainted by the fallenness or the guilt that we all inherit from Adam. Psalm 51.5, we could be here all day looking at Scriptures. I think you guys know that. We could be here all day looking at Scriptures talking about original sin. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. When Ella gets a little bit older, you'll see. (laughs) So anybody who's had children know that these things are true. We repeatedly tell that as we're proclaiming the Gospel. The Scriptures, or these Scriptures and many others, Clearly teach original sin from Adam. So babies don't go to heaven because they are sinless, but because God is gracious. God is gracious. That's what we're looking at, is the grace of God. Now some argue that to be a a faithful, reformed Calvinist, okay, that's what we are. I don't even like using the word Calvinist because of the labels and and it, it, it just unnecessarily offends people. But these reformed doctrines, some, some argue that to be a faithful reformed Calvinist, they say babies are born sinful, have no opportunity to believe or cry out for mercy, so they are all damned. People often accuse Charles Spurgeon of embracing a theology that damned babies go to hell. I've been accused of this too. Oh, you're a Calvinist, so you believe all babies go to hell. I'm like, I don't know where you got that. But listen to Spurgeon's response to this, okay? This is a fairly lengthy quote, but it is... It's too good not to quote. So this is Spurgeon's response to that accusation. He says, Among the gross falsehoods which have been uttered against the Calvinist proper is the wicked lie that we hold the damnation of little infants. A better lie was never uttered. They have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth. Or, I'm sorry, there may there may have existed somewhere in some corner of the earth a, a degenerate who would dare to say that these infants were in hell, but I never met with him, nor have I met with a man who ever saw such a person. We say in regard with to, to infants, Scripture saith but very little, which I kind of disagree with him on that, but I understand what he's saying. There's not like a verse that just says, hey, this is what happens to babies when they die. But he goes on to say, and therefore, when Scripture is uh, confessedly scant, it is for no man to determine dogmatically. But I think I speak for the entire body, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions, and those unknown to me when I say, we hold that all infants who die are elect of God and are therefore saved. And we look, we, we look to this as being the means by which Christ shall see the travail of the soul to a great degree, And we do sometimes hope 
that thus the multitude of the saved shall be made to exceed the multitude of the lost because of these infants. Whatever views our friends may hold upon the point, they're not necessarily connected with Calvinistic doctrine. I believe the Lord, I believe that the Lord Jesus, here he goes back to that same verse, who said, of such is the kingdom of heaven, doth daily and constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. That is from our um, Reformed Baptist forefather that we all hold so dearly, Charles Spurgeon. John MacArthur said this. I didn't do the research. I trust him on this. He said, if you survey Reformed literature from the last 400 years, from the time of the Reformation, John Calvin's days, that that time period, uh, you will discover that the vast majority of these, these Reformed teachers believe that infants are elect and go instantly into the arms of Jesus Christ. So well, so someone might say, if, if, if God saves infants like this, then it just seems like it's just grace. Yeah, it is. What was the song we sang? Grace alone. It, it is grace alone. Let me ask you a question. How were you saved? Oh, sorry, I'm not, I fell over. How were you saved? Was it grace or works? hope it was grace. <laughs> Guys, you had no more to do with your salvation than any infant. Okay? By what means are these infants saved? Obviously, it's Christ's work on the cross, right? And the regenerating, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's only, guys, this is real important to understand. It's only pure, reformed soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation, okay? It's only reformed soteriology that, that can consistently teach that God saves infants in the same way that He saves anybody else. Okay? We can consistently teach that. If that's what we hold to, we can say God saves a baby the same way He saves an adult. By His grace. By His grace alone. And this is the point. Not because of a decision. We're not saved by a decision we make. Jordan wasn't saved because of a decision he or she made. But by the grace of God. By the regenerating work of the power of the Holy Spirit that's not hard for God to do with an infant any harder than it is to do with the Apostle Paul on the, or Saul on the road to Tarsus. Let me ask you this, for those of you who are familiar with the story, when, when Saul was riding, the, uh, riding on the road to Damascus, was he, was he contemplating making a decision for Jesus Christ? He was going to hunt Christians down putting them in prison, killing them. And God saved him by His grace, just like that. That's the same way He saves an infant, by God's sovereign choice. And I'm, and I'm hoping by looking at all these building blocks that we can see God's, not only His heart, but His care for the little ones, the innocent ones. You say, but they can't, but they, but they didn't believe. Right, they can't believe. But that's the point, guys. That is where... Having a biblical reformed view of soteriology is so important. We repent and believe as a result of God changing our heart, or that's not even right, we're giving us a new heart, causing us to be born again. Repentance and faith is a result of that. It's evidence that God has saved us. 
not the cause. So somebody who would hold to more of an Arminian theology would have to come up with a different way that God's going to save the little ones because they can't make that decision. Does that make sense? Salvation is of the Lord. God in His grace sovereignly applies the work of Christ to these little ones and carries them into His presence. All of grace. I mentioned Paul. What about the thief on the cross? Again, good picture of grace, right? He couldn't do anything during his salvation. But there is no better picture of grace than God rescuing these little ones. B.B. Warfield, the theologian at Princeton Seminary back when it was a good one. The The destiny of infants who die is determined irrespective of their choice by an unconditional decree of God suspended for its execution on no act of their own. And their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit prior to and apart from any action of their own proper wills. And if death and infancy does depend upon God's providence, it is assuredly God in His providence who selects this vast multitude to be made participants of His unconditional salvation. This is but to say that they are unconditionally predestined to salvation from the foundation of the world. And beloved, is God not by nature a Savior? That's who He is by nature as a Savior. That's what separates our God, which there's only one God, by the way, from all the other false gods, the idols of this world that men make up. Our God is a Savior. That's who He is by nature. Is it not the truest expression of His gracious heart that He would choose to save the little ones? Our next building block, we are, we are saved by grace, but damned by works. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. <clears throat> Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Not according to their deeds that they may have done in the future, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what am I arguing? I'm arguing that the little one's names were written in the book of life because they are his elect. And I'm not alone on that, by the way. I hope you guys can see that. Unbelief has always been singled out as the primary damning sin. A person who doesn't believe doesn't obey. Unbelief always produces evil works. That's what's being revealed here in the great white throne judgment. So again, these little ones are innocent. Okay? Innocent. Not because John MacArthur or John Calvin or Matthew Henry call them innocent, but because God calls them innocent. They are innocent in the sense that they have no basis on which to believe or not to believe. They are incapable of discerning right from wrong. 
They're incapable of it. They're incapable from discerning sin from righteousness. They're incapable from discerning evil from that which is good. Deuteronomy one thirty nine says this, Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. That is just simply God exempting the young children on this temporal land judgment. But the principle we see, God is exempting these young children on this temporal land judgment on Israel based on their innocence. Little children are called innocent by God Himself because they have no willful rebellion against God. We see the heart of God here. Romans 1, 18-21. Real quickly. That worked good that time. It just slid right to Romans 1. Maybe I've been there before. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Divine judgment comes upon those in this text that we see who suppress the truth. Let me ask you, do these little ones suppress the truth? They don't understand any truth to suppress. They can neither cry out to God nor turn away from Him, nor suppress any truth because they're incapable of comprehending any of it. They're not like this, these, these adults, these these. People who are old enough, regardless of the age, who are old enough to suppress the truth. 19th and 20th century theologian R.A. Webb says this, If a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment. Because sin is a reality. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten, and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings bring it to a conscious, or being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of the penalty would be absent and justice would be disappointed cheated of its validation. So shall not the judge of the earth do that which is right? Yes. And I, and I will say, and then we're going we're gonna to close here in just a moment, I will say that I agree with Spurgeon, his language on that. That, that is where my heart is at. Because of what the Scriptures teach. And so in closing, guys, I'll leave you with this question. Will you see your baby again? Will you see your baby again? Well, that depends. Let's, let's finish with David real quick. David's 
many of you guys are probably aware of this aware of this account. David David committed adultery with Bathsheba. She conceived. The consequent through the prophet Nathan told David that the child would surely die. That would be one of the consequences for her sin. So sure enough, the infant went very in its first few days became sick. David fasted and prayed, pleaded with God to heal his baby. I'm going to go ahead and flip over here right now. And this is where we will finish here in just a moment. Second Samuel 12. So, so, so David pleaded with God to save his baby. Fasted, prayed, but the baby died on the seventh day. Okay? Now one would think that like the men who were around David, they were scared to approach him. They thought, man, he was, they thought he was so, he was so out of, you know, just grieving. He was so upset because his, they didn't know how he was going to respond when they brought him the news that the baby died. So one would think that David's grieving would intensify after hearing the news. Then 2 Samuel 12, 21-23 says this, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He says, I will... Um, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's confidence was that he would go to his, his, young, his little one. And so like Job, guys, you can bet that David had pretty good theology. Okay, He had pretty good theology. That's important to remember. Well, some might say, some do say, that David's simply speaking about being buried in the same burial plot next to his infant. Well, that would bring you hope, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that bring you a lot of hope? This is MacArthur's words on this, and I agree, it's ridiculous. This is David, a man after God's own heart, who wrote a large portion of the Psalms. This is not some pagan, some idolatrous Jew who has a, you know, a, 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 a false view of the afterlife. This is David we're talking about. This is not some guy, like with Job, this is not some guy going, I don't really believe there's a hell and... You know, we'll all be comforted in the grave, and I'll just, I'm looking forward to just being in the dirt next to my infant. Now, this is a man who understands judgment and reward, heaven and hell. Okay? And so, to help us understand a little better David's mindset, he had another son called Absalom, who was an adult, who was wicked, and Absalom wanted to kill his father. He wanted to take over, uh, take his father's place. And so, one day, while Absalom was in pursuit of David on his mule, he fell to duck. So guys, a little lesson today. Riding your horse, you see a big branch, duck. Okay, so he was in pursuit of David. He fell to duck and his head got stuck in the thick branches of a great oak. And he was left, he was left dangling there while the mule kept going. So Joab, the commander of the army, made sure Absalom was dead by thrusting him with a spear. So that's the, that's the setting. 2 Samuel 18, let's see how... Okay, we saw how he responded to one of his children, right? I'm going to go to him. Again, let's ask ourselves, is he really thinking about a burial plot? I'm sure Absalom was putting a burial plot. 
2 Samuel 18.33 The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you Absalom, my son, my son. I understand David. I've got a wicked son. And if I found out my son died in his condition, that would be me. Oh, I wish it could have been me. Why didn't David say, I'll go to him? Like he stated with the infant. Because David wasn't referring to a burial plot. Or he would have said it. Absalom was wicked. And David knew it. He was grieving because he knew his son was under the wrath of God. He knew there was judgment in the afterlife. Under the just judgment because of his rebellion towards God. So David knew that he would be with his infant who passed out of this life into the next. Because he knew God was full of grace and saving his little one. It was just a matter of fact. I'm going to go with him. I'm going to be with him. I'm going to go where he is. Why could he say that? Because David knew the Lord. He knew the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. Oh yes, he fell into sin. Like we're all capable of doing, like we all do. God restored him. He repented. He was trusting in the Lord so that he knew that he would be reunited with his baby. And so, what about you today? Back to our question on this last building block that we looked at. Will you see your baby again? Maybe it's not your baby. Will you see the baby, the infant that you know died? Who we've seen that God rescues these little ones, his innocent ones? Will you? Maybe you're an aunt. Maybe you're an uncle. Maybe you're a brother or sister. Will you see that little one again? And I said a while ago, remember? Well, that depends. I could, I could approach this in a myriad of ways, but the question is, guys, is do you know Christ? Those who know Christ will see the little ones. Yes, I believe hundreds of animals will see their little one again because they're trusting the same Lord that David's trusting in. And so for those of us who do know our right hand from our left, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. God has given us a law and we have all broken it. Amen? We have all broken it. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies, the Scripture says. You don't have to give the answer, but how many lies have you told in your life? Right? We're all guilty. We're all separated from God because of our sin. And so if we have hopes, not only of seeing these little ones, but seeing Christ, then we need to become like those little ones and humble ourselves. Back to that analogy. Unless you are converted and become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does that look like? That looks like us coming to an honest understanding, an honest evaluation of our life before a holy God. That yes, we are, part of, we are part of that all who the Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. We have broken God's law in our actions, by our thoughts, 
immoral thoughts, of lust, these type of things God sees in our heart. And the reason we do these things is because we are sinners by nature. And God is a just and holy God. And that, and that place that I read about in Revelation 20, that's the destination for the lawbreakers, for those who rebel and die under the wrath of God. But God is a merciful God. He is a loving God. He is a gracious Savior. He is by nature a Savior. And the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So yes, the hope of seeing the little ones, the hope of seeing Christ, is that you would trust in Him, your Creator, the one who came to this earth, born of a virgin, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 to come and rescue those who were under the dominion of Satan. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And He came, that one, He came. Born under the law, obeyed the law perfectly in our place, Went to the cross where He took the wrath that you and I deserve. Punished in our place. We start seeing the good news of the Gospel. He was punished in our place. He took what I deserved. Was placed in the tomb and God raised Him from the dead. Defeating death, hell, and the grave. And now the command for all people everywhere is to repent and believe the Gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ. His perfect life, His substitutionary death, for the forgiveness of sins. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the question is, is do you know Christ? He said, this is eternal life. That you may know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you don't, I'll close with this, the words of Christ. Come to me. This is the words of I'm not saying come to me. Christ says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, he said, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he, he also says this promise right here. He said, whoever, whoever does come to me, I will never cast out. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your grace, God. If there's one thing that we have seen today, have been reminded of today, it is that you saved by your grace. Anybody who is saved is saved by your grace. Infants, middle-aged, big, strong, burly men, or somebody laying on their deathbed. We are all saved by grace. Those of us who are saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Even the faith is the gift of God. So that no one may boast. It's not, it's not of works, anything we do. So that we have nothing to boast about, Father. We thank you, Father, for your grace. Lord, I, we, we, we thank you for your word. I pray just that you would continue to heal and comfort Hunter and Savannah and her family. I pray, God, that, that everybody here could be encouraged by what your word says about little ones. Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you for giving us such a picture of how kind you are, Lord. And rescuing the helpless. And so, Father, be with us uh, this afternoon as we just uh, have fellowship and, um, and just love and comfort the maggots, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.